Today we're here to discuss the simple but radical conviction that organizations will best prosper when they are more deeply aligned with people's strongest motive, which is to grow. Those organizations are called Deliberately Developmental Organizations, and there's a new book looking into these called An Everyone Culture, Becoming a Deliberately Developmental Organization. We're here with one of the co-authors, Lisa Leahy, member of the Ed School faculty. Welcome to the EdCast. Thank you. So Lisa, you and Bob Keegan, Matt Miller, Deb Helsing, you're all Ed School folks uh, from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. You're ed School people. I'm curious, what turned you on to organizational culture, looking at businesses, now a book through HBR Press. What kind of originated this interest, which led to this book? Hmm. Well, let's start with the fact that the all the authors, and uh, this includes Andy Fleming, um, we are all at heart developmental psychologists. And our passion is around, number one, understanding that people grow and how people grow. So we came to these deliberately developmental organizations because we could see they were doing something very, very different, radically different than other organizations that we've had the privilege to be in. And that thing they were doing was supporting everyone's development. That's why we call it an everyone culture, the book. Um, they were supporting everyone's development in an ongoing, continuous way while simultaneously believing all of this was going to be supporting the development of the organization. And in fact, it turns out when you support people's development, it allows the organization to better and better deliver on its mission. So talk about how, how that actually works in practice. How, how do you support everyone within an organization? And then what are the sort of practices behind that? I guess there's probably people who are managers, who are you know education leaders, who are organizational leaders out there going, okay, what, what does that mean, support everyone? Does that mean making sure the janitor is paid well and the principal is getting a good salary? Or what more does it mean? So it's interesting that you use money, finances, as a way of thinking about supporting people. That is definitely one kind of a support, but that is not the kind of um, development that we're thinking of and seeing in these, in these deliberately developmental organizations. Instead, what we are seeing is a culture that, number one, really does support every single person. So yes, the janitor is included, everybody is included because there is a deep-seated belief that the more we can support everybody to be his or her best self, the more the organization is going to thrive and the more the organization thrives, the better it's going to be able to support its people. The support is really in the form of things we might not typically think of as support, uh, but from a developmental perspective, you could categorize them as these two big kind of wings. One is the wing of support, and the other is the wing of challenge. And the way that these deliberately developmental organizations work, there is a culture that is genuinely inviting everybody to be a real, a whole, an authentic self. And that means that you can't do the what we say is your second job of covering up your weaknesses, hiding your vulnerabilities. No, in, in these organizations, you are invited to be that person who doesn't know everything, who is making mistakes, who is vulnerable. And that is part of the invitation. And actually, more than invitation, it's a requirement. As my mother-in-law says, love me warts and all. Exactly. That is the right phrase to use, warts and all. So 
I'm not hiding my warts. I'm not putting Clearasil on my pimples, you know? There they are. And it's not so that I can be showing off about them. It is really so that I can engage them and the others around me can engage with me as well. So I'm not left alone and isolated. I belong to a community. That's the support piece. The challenge piece comes when we see there is a gap between my intention and what I'm actually doing, how I'm showing up here, and I am willing and able to take a look at the mirror, and I am getting feedback from people that helps me to see there is that gap and also helps me to see when I'm shoring up that gap. So in terms of actual practices that we've seen in these deliberately developmental organizations, they include things like ongoing feedback. How how are you doing? And it's not just writ large, it's relative to the work you're actually doing. And that work includes some of this interior or internal landscape work that you're up to. So it's not just the project deliverables, it's how are you as the person who is engaged in the project doing relative to, for example, this need you had to get better at delegating. And how is that going? But it's not just people looking at, are you better delegating? They're also taking a look at what was the thing that was going on inside of you, that internal landscape dimension that was making it hard for you to delegate. So it would be something like, this is just for example, um, okay, I want to be the most important person who's contributing. Well, it's really hard to delegate when that's what's going on, but that's the typical kind of thing we would never think to share with people in the workplace. I need to be this important person. You know, we would never say that. But uh, what we've seen is that in these organizations, that is prized to be able to see and take responsibility for that you do want to be the most important person. You want to be shining. Yeah, because you're trying to manage your your how you're being seen by people. But the work is going to be better done. And more people are going to be learn learning. And you too, if you can give up on that need and see that there's something quite satisfying for you when you see others thrive. This seems like a really intimate culture where where sharing is encouraged, if yes. not required. Yes. And there's probably uh, no there's probably fewer boundaries in these work cultures than say at a traditional workplace where people are oftentimes very private about how they're feeling because they they compartmentalize. Absolutely. H- how do you promote that kind of uh, that kind of sharing culture when there's already one that's established in a way? How do you shift, if you're not a new organization, to a deliberately developmental organization or use some of the principles of it to get your culture uh, moving in this direction? Yeah, that's a really good question, and we talk about this in the book, and we also provide several examples of companies that have already been underway for, for decades. How do they make the shift? Well, it definitely has to start at the top. Somebody needs to be able to see that the way we're being, the way we are with one another, is actually not leading us to be able to solve some of the biggest challenges that we have in front of us. And these days, and you know, the volatile, uncertain, it's, it's there's lots of opportunities for us to actually grapple with things and. 
And there's a recognition by these people that if you don't engage the full person, you are not getting all of the person, and you are actually reducing the likelihood that you're going to be able to uh, make headway on these really big, hairy problems. If you have a leader who can see we've got to do the work differently, this is going to be a very appealing way to think differently about how you can work differently because it offers the real um, real examples, real case studies of companies that have done this. And you can see how people are showing up in their fullness in ways that allow them to say things you they wouldn't have said at a, in a prior time. So um, start at the top, have a belief that being vulnerable in the ways that we're talking about has value, that making mistakes has value. In a way, um, you know, Carol Dweck has been talking about this for many years in her mindset book and this distinction between having a growth orientation and a fixed mindset. Well, what a deliberately developmental organization culture does is create the conditions to have fertile growth happen. So if as a leader, you can see that is actually absent from from what's happening here, and you're willing to take the risk that learning will actually lead to better outcomes, I'd say that's like a, a great place to start and then run small experiments within the, um, the leadership itself. So in your book, In Everyone Culture, you look at companies. Those are some of the examples that you look at. But obviously, it seems like this can apply beyond just for-profit companies to really any organization. Specifically, we're an education podcast. People who are working in schools or nonprofits, uh, education organizations. Uh, am I wrong in thinking that the principles do apply in schools? Or are they different applying within schools or when it, within education settings? Or is it harder to do based on the nature of the work of schools versus the nature of some of the organizations you looked at? Yeah, so I think the answer is the principles do apply to schools. I also would say yes to your question. Is it harder? Yes, because they, it is. Um, there's you don't have the usual incentives in school systems, so you don't have things like promotions and bonuses and all the things that people typically think are reasons why they should be doing this, which, by the way, is not why you'd want to be a part of a DDO anyway. Um, but you have a lot of disincentives. So the tenure system can be a thing that works against people feeling like they need to keep growing. Unions can also uh, not, it's not a slam dunk, but unions can take strong stands that say, no, no, we're, we should not be doing this. So um, I think you've got different kinds of of challenges, but I have seen um, where there are schools that have taken this on. They tend to be smaller um, organizations, and they are able to create a culture, and it's a very welcomed culture. We have a couple of EDLD graduates who, in fact, have done that in Philadelphia, and I was recently talking with them, and yes, they agreed that there are definitely challenges, and the challenges there uh, are, are um, significant, but they were very satisfied by the ways that they could see that the offering of the, the culture of growth was just such a wonderful 
um, balm and salve for people's, for the teacher's sense of, of like wanting to really be in something where they themselves were growing and thriving and to have the community that came with that. So I see that it is definitely possible. And personally, I have an aspiration that schools could be taking on some of the bigger adaptive challenges that that we face right now around equity and being able to provide an education that meets all children's needs. And whenever we are in the realm of confronting an adaptive challenge, having a deliberately developmental culture is a wonderful way of tackling the problem because it allows everybody in that setting to be their fullest self, which includes the reality that even if we can all want equity, there are things we are unconsciously driven by that, in fact, are leading us to behave in ways that are counter to our belief that we are, in fact, acting on behalf of equity. So until those sorts of um, like disconnects within each of us become something we can be comfortable sharing with each other, um, we're not going to actually be able to move the needle on the dial in this very, very important work. And a, de de a deliberately developmental culture does that. It says, we want you to be able to take a look in the mirror and see some of these things that are so hard, and that's going to allow you to grow, it's going to allow me to grow, and it's going to allow, most importantly, us to provide what our kids need so that they can grow. So in looking at a lot of these companies and a lot of the examples in the book, what's one of the best illustrations of, of deliberately developmental organizations in practice, whether it's uh, the leader uh, having conversations or some sort of events or some sort of uh, processes that have been changed? I know that with a deliber deliberately developmental organization, there's a new approach to the feedback that you mentioned, new ways in which managers and leaders define their tasks, new ways in which meetings are done, just one sort of vignette or, 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 or sort of just story of how it works in practice. Yeah. Um, I could tell you a story from each of the three organizations that we studied, so I feel a little bit like, oh, I don't want to just... Don't pick one. Go for it. One, just Go pick for one, it. but I will. Uh, and this is uh, at Decurion, and um, they are an organization, a theater organization, as well as real estate. Um, and I witnessed, along with the other people on my research team, a meeting that is a perfect example of what it means to be in a um, deliberately developmental organization. Here you had a group of people who were coming together at the request of somebody who was in middle management. And the request came because this person was experiencing enormous difficulty around making headway in this particular loyalty program that they were uh, uh, engaged in and felt that it was somebody in the senior leadership who he was having the biggest challenges with. So he asks for this meeting, and the meeting brings together everybody who's involved in the uh, making this loyalty program happen, which includes this very senior person. The um, meeting is going to be run by somebody else in the senior uh, um, leadership. And 
we are meeting in a room. Uh, it's not much bigger than the room that we are in here. And the room itself, when you walk into it, you can already see it's a different kind of room because it has on the walls the different norms that are going are always being activated. And the meeting starts with the, an intentional invocation of this is what we are up to here together and how we are going to be doing this. And it anchors it in the spirit of we're here to be learning. And why is this program that we're up to here, this loyalty program, so important to the bigger organization? So there is an, a very clear ground setting, setting the table, so to speak, to begin with that connects the issue that is going to be discussed to the bigger organizational enterprise, why it matters, and then it connects more locally to the culture immediately around how we're going to work together. Then there's a fishbowl experience that happens where the th core people who are experiencing the conflict are in conversation with one another, and they're surrounded by various people who are a part of this the, the program, as well as other people in the senior leadership, and they are having a conversation in which they are having the opportunity to have what by any means people would call a difficult, a challenging, a courageous conversation, but they are doing it in a way where each person is taking responsibility for Here's how what I know I could be contributing to this situation, and here's what my experience is of how we're in the midst of something now, and this is what I see you as being responsible for, and I want to better understand why is this happening the way it is. The conversation unfolds in a way where people who are outside uh, watching the fishbowl can step in at any point to ask a question that will inevitably be on behalf of trying to see deeper into what is the reality of what's happening within each of these people and between them that the conflict has gotten reified in the way that it has. And the whole meeting ends up being able to basically reveal various things that could not have been before. And when the meeting comes to a close, there's these various levels of learning that have happened. One has to do with what was the, the conflict between the two core people who were engaged in the conflict. But the bigger learning was about what it was for everybody to be a part of something in which we now know what, what these two key people's challenges are, and we are also going to be able to be helpful as we see certain things that emerge that are relevant to what we've just heard. And the biggest enterprise is, okay, we've had another powerful learning experience and see how our being able to be open with each other about what is hard and what's hard to say in the end is ultimately in everybody's best interests and the business's best interests as well. So am I wrong in thinking that a book called An Everyone Culture really should be read by everyone? This is a book for really anyone out there who's part of an organization, who's part of any culture, who wants to improve upon it. That, that's right. And if they do want to buy the book, where can they get the book, Lisa? I say, yes, everybody <laughs> should read the book. Um, and where can they where can they buy the book? I, I you know, you could do your basic Amazon. It's a Harvard Business Press published it. Um, so you could go through their site. Uh, locally here in Cambridge, it's in the coop uh, right 
when you walk through the front door, which is really satisfying. Lisa, the name of the book is An Everyone Culture, Becoming a Deliberately Developmental Organization. Uh, Lisa, thanks for being on the EdCast this week, and thanks for the work that you're doing to really improve the lives of all people holistically, both in work and out of work. Thanks, Matt. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening.